Welcome to Unrequited Lovecraft, a queer exhumation of the works of H.P. Lovecraft. I am Jay. And I am Banyan. And today we're discussing The Tomb, the first story of Lovecraft's adult canon. Now I was listening to H.P. Podcraft like weeks ago just to try and get my bearings before we started this whole thing. And I, I distinctly remember they had a joke in there at the start where it was like, oh, this is Lovecraft's first adult story. And they're like, ooh, a- is it sexy? Adult was italicized. Adult was clearly italicized. Oh, it's his yes. first adult uh, story. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. ooh, it's sexy. And they dismiss it as a goof. And it's not really brought up again. But it's not a goof. It's so horny. It's it's the horniest. So first off, some bibliographic information. The tomb was written in 1917 when Lovecraft was a spry 26 years old. He published it in 1922 in the March issue of The Vagrant. I'm not sure if The Vagrant does issues or volumes. I'm saying issue. And then it also appeared later in Weird Tales in January 1926. I'm putting a pin in that because I remember us looking some stuff up and there was some interesting shit about The Vagrant. And it's not relevant here, but I just want to I want to go back to The Vagrant at some point. We will absolutely be going back to The Vagrant because that's kind of where he got his start. Uh, Because this was not the first story he published, but he did publish a lot in The Vagrant. Now, this first page, before we get into the story proper, there's a few things that we just need to cover because this first page is so rife with love. It's not even raunchy yet. (laughs) It's just it's got so much Lovecraft bullshit that we kind of like need to talk about the the, these like initial tropes before we get into it. In my notes, I just call it Lovecraft bingo. Exactly. The first one sort of is a non trope that I think we should still keep uh an eye on is the fact that this might be Lovecraft's horniest story. Like it's very, it's very easy to read as like, it is a weird fiction tale, but all of the subtext is about like sexual development and it's very on the nose, but also in terms of its language, it just peppers in so many, I don't even want to say double entendres, but it's just... The tomb is so moist and slimy, there's no other way to read it. Uh, yeah, it's wild. It's it, so wet. It's it's wild that his first story for a, a, an author that is known to be sort of sexless, that this is, is this is their first outing. Yeah. The other contenders in my mind for horniest story are Medusa's Coil, that was one, and then you brought up uh, the thing on the doorstep. Yeah, because you mentioned the triad, and I didn't remember that Medusa's coil, but I did remember it in the thing on the doorstep. I don't think either of those are a triad. I think Medusa's coil is a love triangle. Now that I've had some time to think about it, I don't think they had like a a triad thing going on. Yeah. And the thing on the doorstep is also not a triad because that's just a woman being possessed by her grandfather. I thought it was her dad. Um. Maybe, we'll get but I to think, it. yeah, we'll get to it. But I, I think that it was like a lineage thing where it was just, it was like someone ancient hopping forward through all the iterations. Yeah. We'll assess proper rankings at the end of our, of our time here together, but hor- I'm confident. Ranking. Yes. That we'll do a whole thing on the horniness ranking, but I am confident we are in top three stuff with this story. Yeah. Lovecraft was not a top. Certainly not for Sonya Green. We were trying to remember what it was that she had said about Lovecraft. And you said uh, that in the letter, Sonia Green said that Lovecraft was an adequate lover. An adequate lover. Yes. Editor Jay here. 
I was looking it up after the recording and it's actually a lot more favorable than we give him credit for. Sonia described him as an adequately excellent lover. And you know, she dated Aleister Crowley, the sex magician. So like, she got hers. And I was dying because I was thinking of Rockadoodle. Right. And, and adequate pipe. That's, yes. That's what it was. Lovecraft laid adequate pipe. And when she says adequate, she like... I, I She's feel like experienced. she would, I feel like she would. You're saying I, no, no. I'm saying that when she says adequate, it wasn't like the rest of the letter didn't read it as dismissive. It just read it as her being not the, subtle, but no. But the the way she sort of describes it, which this is whatever. But the way she described it, it's like no, she definitely got hers. That's what I mean. Yes. Yeah. He he did his job. He yes. did his job. Yeah. And whatever else you could say about Lovecraft, he did his job. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a weird vein of Lovecraft apologia. I wasn't prepared Do for. Do we have to talk about project. the vein? No, my God, no. So it's a horny story, but as you mentioned, um, Lovecraft bingo. Yes. So with the first sentence of the story, we get our first tick on the bingo, um, which is the narrator is already confined to a mental institution. In relating the circumstances which have led to my confinement within this refuge for the demented, I am aware that my present position will create a natural doubt of the authenticity of my narrative. Uh, so, betting time. How many stories does this happen in? What's our over-under? So, w we have a spreadsheet of all of Lovecraft's stories and, co and contributions and co-writings and stuff that we're going to be covering. Collaborations. Here. Collaborations. Thank yes. you. Yes. Um, I, I could feel you digging for that word. Not posthumous. Dareleth get fucked. But uh, so we have 98 of them in all, not including his poetry. That's all separate shit. How many times do we expect to see a story where the character is either already in an insane asylum or small carve out uh, is saying that they are going to commit suicide right afterward? Like they're like, I've already been driven mad and I'm going to kill myself or I am out of society's picture forever now. How many times do we get that within the opening page? I was initially thinking a really high number, like almost like 80% of the stories. Then I thought about it and then I thought about it some more. And I think I'm going to say like 13. 13? Yes. Okay. I kept jumping back and forth between six and eight. So I'm going to go with seven and I'm going to be prepared for the possibility that I am going to be devastated at the end by being one off. That would be annoying. You being one off is still a lot better than my very initial guess, which was like 83. <laughs> like 83 out of the 98 stories. I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, but we're specifically we're specifically talking about the story has to open with them being right. confined or ready to off themselves. And it has to be explicitly stated, not just implied because it's past tense. Right. Which is and what it doesn't I come was at the trying end. to argue. I'm, I'm also going to keep a small carve out here. I got a little table open of how many times they say it at the end. But I, I feel like I feel like the number is a lot lower than you would think it would be is my main point here. Mm -hmm. So like the first line of the story starts off with something that's already on Lovecraft bingo. In addition to the little quote at the top that we're not getting into. You can find that elsewhere. I'm not an academic. But then immediately after that first line that hits like a Lovecraft bingo square, then we get just the complete summary of Lovecraft's entire ethos when it comes to 
you know what? Hold on. Hold on for a yes. second. Because a little bit behind the scenes. When I read these stories for the show, I like copied it all over from from hplovecraft.com, which has all of his texts for free. Go there. It's a good resource. It's all just in plain text on on a website. It's great. Copied it over to Word documents so that I could have all the co- uh, all the comments there. And I must have missed the Virgil quote at the start because I think that would count as part of Lovecraft Bingo. Yeah, because that's definitely part of it. We we kind of skipped that, but yeah, I thought you skipped it on purpose. Nope, that was an oversight. Oops. So we actually we're we're a very we're a very diligent podcast here. We're not, you know, <laughs> this is not an academic podcast. This is all vibes. Um, Just vibes. We're but, chill. Yeah. I mean, here's, but here's the thing is that it starts with a quote from Virgil in Latin. Sedibus ut saltum placidus in morte quesicum. At least in death, I may find peaceful rest. I have the translation. What is it? Is it relevant? Yes. I mean, surely it's oddly, relevant, but like. Oddly enough. Yes. Ready? What do we got? At any rate in death, I may rest in peaceful abodes. It's so fine. It doesn't. So it's in just, Latin, it just means at least when I'm dead, I'll be comfy. Yeah, and, and that's fine. Virgil. It's, a, it's fine. You didn't really miss anything by missing it. It doesn't didn't unlock anything. It's fine. Yeah, that was in the um, in the notes from the new annotated H.P. Lovecraft Beyond Arkham. That's where that was at. I see. So, uh, yeah, so that's. What? That's Lovecraft Bingo 1? See, mm, so I think the real Lovecraft Bingo for the epigraph is not that he includes a Latin phrase. It's that he includes poetry that he's written, but either attributed it to somebody else or uncredited it to himself. Because that happens a lot. Yes, but it wasn't so much that the epigraph was a Latin quote as much as it was that... Lovecraft was alluding to the classics and explicit and explicitly quoting the classics as far as Lovecraft bingo. You're absolutely right. So that counts under that counts under that aspect of Lovecraft bingo, but not, but not as e- but not as the epigraph. You're right. Okay. okay. We're, we're we're figuring out Lovecraft bingo in real time here, folks. So we got that one out of the way. We got the yeah. second one. Uh, narrator already confined to a mental institution or going to kill themselves. Boom. Boom. Next paragraph, we get... No, same paragraph. Same paragraph. We get what is... (laughs) Next sentence. (laughs) Next sentence. We get what is the most foundational Lovecraft credo we are going to get for a long time. This is all of Lovecraft's deal that he will be writing about for the foreseeable future until his death. It is an unfortunate fact that the bulk of humanity is too limited in its mental vision to weigh with patience and intelligence those isolated phenomena, seen and felt by only a psychologically sensitive view which lie outside its common experience. Men of broader intellect know that there is no sharp distinction betwixt the real and unreal, that all things appear as they do only by the virtue of their delicate individual physical and mental media through which we are made conscious of them. But the prosaic materialism of the majority condemns as madness the flashes of supersight which penetrate the common veil of obvious empiricism. And he expands on this in Supernatural Horror in Literature, which I actually very much enjoy and is very much sort of influencing how I read all of these stories. I highly recommend it. We will have like a standalone episode on it, I'm sure. But it's just this essay that sums up weird fiction and 
supernatural horror and examples of supernatural horror in stories that Lovecraft likes. He rewrote it like at least a dozen times over his lifetime as he would read more stuff and he would just sort of fold new things in and drop old stuff out. You know, it's not the most compelling read all the time. It's mostly just a list of books he likes with the sections that he likes talked about. If anything, it is at least a very good reading list if you like weird fiction. Go mm-hmm. look at supernatural horror and literature and just read anything that is mentioned there and it's all good shit. I don't want to risk going off on a tangent, but we're already like, there. <laughs> the 1920s had huge technological advances, so a lot of things that sort of touched on supernatural horror sort of account for these various advances like in technology and science and biology and understanding. And so that sort of idea of what's known and not known was very shifty. It's sort of wild that his first page of writing is that we get this encapsulation of everything that's coming. I I don't read a lot of other authors in the way that I read Lovecraft, where I've read everything in order front to back, like multiple times. So I don't have the knowledge base to know if that's I assure you this Common? is not normal. No, it's, it's not normal. It's weird, for right? the, No, listen. It is not normal for the first story that someone publishes to include a thesis statement for the entirety of their future career. That is not normal. <laughs> I figured. Jesus. Like, it's just because he'll refine it a little bit. He'll make it a little bit more sciencey towards the towards the end of his life. But like, this is it. Yeah. So now. Now, now we're in the story. Now we can talk about the story. Now we can talk about the the named narrator. So we don't get yeah. we don't get the we don't get the Lovecraft bingo of the unnamed narrator yet because this guy has a doozy of a name. Jervis. Jervis what? Jervis Dudley. My name is Jervis Dudley, and from earliest childhood I have been a dreamer and a visionary, wealthy beyond the necessities of a commercial life, and temperamentally unfitted for the formal studies and social recreations of my acquaintances. I have dwelt ever in the realms apart from the visible world, spending my youth and adolescence in ancient and little-known books, and in roaming the fields and grove of the region near my ancestral home. I do not think that what I read in those books or saw in those fields and groves was exactly what other boys read and saw there, but of this I must say little. We don't get the bingo for it being an unnamed narrator, but we do get the bingo for it being a very shameless Lovecraft self-insert character. Yeah, we'll have to decide whether whether the Lovecraft, the true Lovecraft bingo has just self-insert character or unnamed self-insert character. Mm. I think unnamed... At some point in the future, uh, un- I mean, not unnamed, right now. Unnamed, no, I'm telling you, I decided. <laughs> uh, unnamed narrator is one bingo square and self-insert character. Like, I want to count those as two because there are some characters I recall who are unnamed, but do not necessarily have the Lovecraft vibe. Okay, I'll accept that. Okay. I think it might be a weird bingo where it's like eight by eight at this point. We're already. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's it's a non-Euclidean uh, uh, bingo. There we go. Bingo sheet. Yeah. Three-dimensional bingo. Yeah. <laughs> um. So... Uh, Jervis Dudley introduces himself uh, from his cell in the inpatient psychological care facility. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> but like, it, no, it's, it's hard because like part of my brain is 
occupied by real world librarian who has to help people with like real psychological trauma and mental illness and stuff. And the other half is reading this or it's like, ooh, scary. Right. So it, it's hard. And there's just like it's inevitable that there's going to be a lot of uh, like ableist language, e- even just if it's just like antiquated language, sometimes even antiquated for the time. So at the very least, we can say that a lot of the time when somebody is, you know, confined to some sort of institution, uh, they're right. <laughs> like they, they probably sometimes they need to be there because they're right. And also that's upset them to the point where they can no longer function. But a lot of the times they're just right and put in there because they're saying wild stuff. And that's its own kind of horror. Yeah. Like so often people are especially historically like institutionalized for just being slightly too aware hysteria yeah like too aware of their predicament and not wanting to deal with it and wanting to break free from like the confines of societal norms that are real bad there is mental illness and those two things very much exacerbate one like one another and blah 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 but we're not doctors and this is again another tangent here do we (laughs) do do we ever get do we i don't think we ever get a lobotomy in in lovecraft stories though no, we get a weird fish squiggles. Excuse me? Uh, from beyond, where you just see the little jellyfish or whatever. I think that's, that's the closest we get. I mean, that's developing the, the pineal gland. That's not, that's a reverse lobotomy. They're adding more shit to the brain. <laughs> like, you're unlocking, yeah. you're, you know, you're taking the yeah. limitless pill there. I honestly don't recall just like a, a straight lobotomy. Yeah, which is strange. It is strange. That's definitely something to keep an eye out for, though. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely like waiting for there to be like, oh, in this story, there was one me. But mm, yeah, but I can't recall off the top of my head. Anyway, back to Jervis. Holy shit. Yeah. Paragraph two. How long have we been recording? Um, Too long. So <laughs> uh, Jervis Dudley is narrating from the confines of his cell and he's going on and on and on about how he's a Lovecraft stand in and how. You know, he talked to dryads and he read all these old books and he was real special. And he's very much like, I am the main character. Me is what happens. He's a sensitive boy. He doesn't have a lot of friends or any friends, really, by the token of the story. Co- um, cough, cough, Lovecraft. Yeah. Except for like, the Lovecraft dryads. Friends, yeah. Except for the dryads and yeah. Spirits of the woods that he's wandering around in. His parents taught him Taught him to walk on a on a mossy hillside, which is just kind of mean. Close by my home, there lies a singular wooded hollow, in whose twilight deeps I spent most of my time, reading, thinking, and dreaming. Down its moss-covered slopes, my first steps of infancy were taken, and around its grotesquely gnarled oak trees, my first fancies of boyhood were woven. Well did I come to know the presiding dryads of those trees, and often have I watched their wild dances in the struggling beams of waning moon. But of these things, I must not now speak. Yeah, on wet moss, just, oh, just watch him slide down. He spent his youth and adolescence in ancient and little-known books. And then he finds a tomb. Back when Jervis was 10, he finds a tomb, like, near his home, uh, actually built into a hill. And the hill also used to be home to a large mansion that... 50 plus years prior was struck by lightning and burned to the ground and the tomb belongs to the family that owned that 
who lived in that mansion. And so with that, he starts visiting that tomb every day. He becomes obsessed with it. He's explicitly forbidden from going to the tomb and the churchyard by his parents, but he still in secret begins going there every single day for multiple hours. Well, and the thing was, was like he's he's forbidden to go there, but he's going there every day for hours. But this is clearly like he's wealthy. You know, he has a servant much, much later. So like, yeah, I was going to say we don't find that out right away. No, but what I'm saying is surely the boy had a nanny. You know, he had he had some kind of uh, what did they call him? A governess. He can't get into the tomb because it has, you know, that giant lock on it. But he still visits every day. Still visits every day. Just because he can't get in doesn't mean he's not going to hang out. That's, you know. When he was 11, so after a year of just visiting this tomb every day for hours, uh, he reads Plutarch's Lives. And since he's the hero of the story, he's just like, yeah, that's the ticket. I'll just wait until I'm strong enough to break the lock to get into the tomb. You would think, oh, he's going to work out. He's going to have this sort of like um, montage of, you know, working out, getting strong, break the tomb. No, he just sort of, eh. Like, like he doesn't really do anything. He just says, I'm I'm going to wait until I'm older and the wisdom of age will allow me to break it. It's like the wisdom of age should have told you to just get like a hammer. Once that mail order lock picking kit comes in, it's the 1910s. The mail takes a little bit. Yeah. And then also like after reading um, Plutarch's Lives, that's also when he was like, OK, I'll just wait until I'm strong and then I'll break the lock. But in the meantime, I'll just live my life. Um, I forgot what he says. Oh, he he spends his time pursuing, quote, other though equally strange pursuits is what he says he's doing. So he's not visiting the tomb nearly as often. But he is doing shit that is equally as weird as visiting a tomb every day for hours. So he's just a weird little pervert. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Editor Jay here. We here at Unrequited Lovecraft do not condone kink shaming and fully support Mary Shelley's graveyard carnal antics. This luxury, however, does not extend to Lovecraft OCs. We will continue to call Jervis a smelly little gravefucker. Small note with Plutarch's lives. I didn't read the Theseus story is the one that he relates to. I tried to read it. I didn't really. It like it seemed to just, you know, he covers it in the story. It's fine. The only thing of note is that the other title of Plutarch's lives is Parallel Lives. It's a good illusion. Very subtle. He hides the secondary title. He just calls it Plutarch's Lives. He doesn't call it Parallel Lives. So I'm sorry. He does what to the other title? I don't know. What did I say? He said he hides it. Hey, okay. Sorry. (laughs) I was also a little disappointed because when I was looking up Plutarch's Lives, it is, is it Greek or Roman? We did this last time too. I don't know. Lives of notable Greeks and Romans. So both. (laughs) Okay, cool. So when I was looking up Plutarch's lives, it was like 48 stories or something like that, that they that were written originally, but only like 20 something of them are extant in the modern day that we know about. I was really hoping that the story that Lovecraft was going to be referencing was one that just wasn't in the book. I thought we were just going to have a lost one in there, but we did. Which I would love. Like... That's literally like what Deborah Harkness does in A Discovery of Witches is they find a a real misplaced, hidden, lost book slash manuscript from like the 1590s. That's on the bingo sheet as well of fake Are we going to have a... Okay. I thought you were going to have a fig bingo sheet where it's all about like 
I talk about a discovery of witches. I I, no. I bring up the Habsburgs. Here's the thing, though. I say here's the thing, though. You could easily make a a me bingo sheet. That's not our bingo sheet to make. Is the thing. <laughs> I will accept that. Yes. So by the time he's come of age, he's gone there so much that there is just like a clearing in the thicket. The the shrubbery has built up around it. So while he hasn't been going there every day, he's still going there more than enough to affect its environment and become a weird little metaphor for growing pubes. <laughs> well, and the, the, the uh, even funnier, they it's literally called a desire path. A desire path? Yeah, that's that's oh what that's God. called. I know. So you say, oh, no, it's just like a metaphor for pubes. I'm like, is that is that what we're calling it? Your your desire path instead of a happy trail? It's a desire path. <laughs> I think that's a better name for it. I, I think I agree. Oh, I do want to say this. Um, the character of uh, Jer- Jervis Dudley does say that he's the last of his paternal race. But the idea of entering the tomb never left my thoughts being indeed stimulated by the unexpected. You don't have to be stimulated by the unexpected genealogical discovery uh, that, quote, my own maternal ancestry possessed at least a slight link with the supposedly extinct family of the Hides. Last of my paternal race, I was likewise the last of this older and more mysterious line. That's actually very reminiscent of Lovecraft's actual story where reading um, I Am Providence, his matrilineal line is much more well documented than his paternal line. Which is interesting and very out of the ordinary. So I just thought that was a neat little detail. Yeah. Can I put a link to uh, the House of Garcenda video in the show notes? Yes. Yes, you can. Thank you. Thank you. I was surprised it didn't come up. Sorry. (laughs) Well, I was going to and I was like, no, uh, keep keep it contained. We just talked about the bingo. We just we just I can't bring up the Habsburgs and House of Garcenda. Like, it's fine. But I'll put it in the show notes. We all have special interests. It's fine. <laughs> it is what it is. One little thing that I liked about about him spending all his time by the tomb was that he mentions how the tomb feels like it's breathing. Mm-hmm. And he like makes note of like, oh, this dead place is breathing. That was fun to me because, yeah, caves breathe. Like they have air pressure and they if you stand by the entrance of a cave, it air wind goes back and forth between them. That's not inherently supernatural. Exactly. He says it so obliquely that it can be. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, ooh, is this a creepy thing? Or no, it's just, that's just how caves, that's just how things work, like, regularly. Yeah, but I think that also leans into the horniness. It's like, mm, the cave, it, it's undulating. And so with him spending all this time by the tomb, he's starting to accrue what I have have in my notes as ghost knowledge. He astonishes everybody in town because there's a headstone that's crumbled to powder it's unrecognizable but he just sort of points at it and goes like oh yeah the undertaker stole his shoes and his small clothes before burial and then the body turned twice in its mound covered coffin on the day after internment if you read it literally he knows shit now but also i mean nobody checked like the shit he knows is like oh yeah someone was Buried alive. Yeah, buried alive and like someone stole. Yeah, robbed (laughs) and like robbed in secret a hundred over a hundred years ago. Like Mm -hmm. stuff that's not going to be known. But also nobody checked. He could just be a little kid saying some shit. Yeah. 
because he's spending all his time by fucking graves. Yeah, and it's 1711, so it would have been like 200 years prior, roughly. A long ass time. Yeah. I do. Okay, this is just a small thing. I like this little bit about class um, where this like 200 year old slate headstone is just like slowly crumbling to powder. Meanwhile, there's this like still pretty sturdy granite tomb. No, the people with money are the people who last are the the people whose names live in history. You got to maintain that shit. That's just a real thing. Well, that, that's not a, that's not a main, a maintenance thing. That's a the price and the the stability and the quality of the original materials thing. And I like that the slate headstone is clearly like of worse quality than the granite tomb because the slate's falling apart. Meanwhile, the tomb is still kicking. Speaking of that, do you want to bring up the materials aspect here? Yeah. So granite. All right. So granite in the U.S., specifically in, like, Eastern Seaboard, whatever, um, didn't actually, like, gain popularity in, until, like, mid, mid-late mid 1800s. Like, yes, granite was used um, by Native and Indigenous people, but not necessarily for, like, these big tombs. And so I was looking to see which granite quarries it could come from, and I spent a lot of time at work just looking to see where this granite could have come from for like building it into this hill. And I think I ended up deciding it would have been somewhere like North Carolina. I think that's what I ended up figuring out is that's probably where it came from. But even then it would have been taxing because like those type of operations that would have been able to provide the amount for a tomb were just not present at that time yet. Right. Exactly. It would have been remarkably expensive. So is it a Lovecraft oversight? Who knows? Yeah, that's what I was so like weird about because like clearly this tomb must have been there for Dudley says multiple generations. So it'd have to be at least like 200 years, right? So just figuring out when this granite would have been quarried and stuff. Um like I'm not finding much. Like like I'm not finding like any like very uh organized granite quarries within the US in, you know, 1650 1700 fun yeah here's the thing yes but it's just like such a big deep dive when we're like just trying to get through the story that's all so one night he falls asleep in front of the tomb and this time something actually happens the night of the first revelation was a sultry one i must have fallen asleep from fatigue for it was with a distinct sense of awakening that i heard the voices of the tones and accents i hesitate to speak Of their quality, I will not speak, but I may say that they presented certain uncanny differences in vocabulary, pronunciation, and mode of utterance. Every shade of New England dialect, from the uncouth syllables of the Puritan colonists to the precise rhetoric of fifty years ago, seemed represented in that shadowy colloquy, though it was only later that I noticed that fact. At the time, indeed, my attention was distracted from this matter by another phenomenon, a phenomenon so fleeting that I could not take oath upon its reality. I barely fancied that as I awoke, a light had been hurriedly extinguished within the sunken sepulchre. I do not think I was either astounded or panic-stricken, but I know that I was greatly and permanently changed that night. Upon returning home, I went with much directness to a rotting chest in the attic, wherein I found the key that next day unlocked with ease the barrier I had so long stormed in vain. 
Yeah. And then like, so he wakes up, he thinks he sees a light being extinguished. It's, that's when he, he is changed. Yeah. That's, that's when he has changed and now he is a man. Yeah. And so he just goes home and just finds the key in the attic, which. Yeah. No explanation as to how. And if we're talking about like, this is Lovecraft's first story. This is the point where I'm coming in with the red pen and being like, this is bad writing. Because there's a lot of Lovecraft bad writing that I that I love, but this is just no. You need to fix that. You say it's Lovecraft's first story, and the thing is, it's like yes, but it's not a first draft. And if it is, we need to talk about that because it's sloppy. So when he goes to the key, is it he miraculously remembered it was there, or did it just miraculously appear now? We don't get that answer, and that's that's the point at which I am. I would be coming in with my pen and saying, just give us something. I knew where I knew where the key was or or, or something. It's the one moment of actual action in this mm-hmm. story before like any ghost parties happen where he like has he has a goal. He knows how to do it and he goes and does a thing up until this point. He's just been standing in different places and sleeping <laughs> like most of the story is him just being in places yeah. This is our one bit of, of, of dramatic action. To him opening a box. Yeah, and we skip that bit. And that's something Lovecraft loves to do in multiple different ways. Um, the other one is that he will... Yeah, he says it a little bit earlier where he says, The physician with the iron gray beard who comes each day to my room once told the visitor that this decision marked the beginning of a pitiful monomania. But I will leave the final judgments to my readers for... When they shall have learnt all. He loves to bring it back to the framing device. He likes to reestablish that there is a narrator narrating it at all times so that he undercuts the dramatic tension. He does not want action. He does not want you to be like excited for the events that are unfolding. It is all about. I have a question. Yes. Is this edging? Yes. Yes, it is. I, I think like, it is. Because like Dunwich Horror, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> it absolutely is. Because like in Dunwich Horror, he does that. He does that too, where they're like they're getting ready, and it's like the biggest action scene in all of Lovecraft canon, where they're they they have like a group of dudes that are going up there with magic weapons to destroy a giant monster, and he establishes there again. He's like, well, we all lived. Now hold on, like we all we all <laughs> lived here. I just want to establish that right out the gate, nobody died, and like brings it back to the framing device before jumping back into the action where it's, it just undercuts everything so that there's 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 never any dramatic tension there. He, he does not want you to be invested in the action. We are here for the existential horror. None of this bodily harm stuff. But Lovecraft will not provide that to you. Considering like how all the renderings of his monsters are all slimy, dirty, but... Lovecraft stories are, like, very, like, clean. Like, not only as far as, like, you know, like, yes, this is the horniest story, blah, 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 blah. There really isn't, like, body horror. There isn't much bodily harm. Bodily harm is what happens when you, like, fuck with a cat. If you've seen the Stuart Gordon, Jeffrey Combs from Beyond, that's not that story. They add so much body horror to that adaptation. It's great. Um, I still haven't finished it. We got really sick and like it was the one yeah. movie i've had to dip on like in the middle it was just too meaty but like the story i think i does just not rolled have over and closed my eyes and said i was done like i'm done yeah once he once, once the dude like put his hand through the man and just like gooped through him like no we're done 
Barbara yeah. Crampton is not going to save us here. We get, we just got to <laughs> come back to this later. And never did. We will. Just. We absolutely. Know. So he gets the key. He has the key. Now we can go yeah. back. Now we can unlock the tomb. Now the story can actually pop off. Yep. So he goes into the, the old tomb. Um, he finds a marker with the name Sir Jeffrey Hyde, who came from Sussex in 1640, died shortly after. Well, here's the thing. That narrows down where it's at. We know the story is not in Sussex. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but is he there ends an up... American Sussex? Oh, surely. But we know it's not in any of the Sussexes. Sussex County is in Delaware. I feel bad because Delaware doesn't feel like a real place to me. Like, I can't think of one identifiable thing about Delaware except for the bit in Wayne's World where they stand in front of a green screen and say, look, we're in Delaware. Because they also didn't have any specific identifiable thing to say about Delaware. So he goes back to the tomb in the afternoon, which I like. Like Lovecraft, you know, like he's very much playing this like, ooh, creepy sort of um, atmosphere, space, whatever. But I like that a lot of the times his big creepy sort of moments actually happen in the daytime. Part of that is because one of the things that instills fear within Lovecraft, not so much in this story, but in future stories, is not so much what you don't see, but it's the things that you see, but you can't comprehend. But I like that he goes back just in the afternoon with the key and he's able to just use the key on the lock, get inside the tomb. And inside, he finds a marker with the name of Sir Geoffrey Hyde, who came from Sussex in 1640. And then in the back corner, he finds a conspicuous alcove uh, with a fairly well-preserved and untenanted casket adorned with a single name, which brought, quote, which brought to me both a smile and a shudder. This is what, halfway through the story, and he's not telling us the name. This is just like Lovecraft playing with us. Like he's just playing games. You know, he's, he's trying to lean into it and be creepy. Come on. This is his like explicit foreshadowing moment. It's almost. It's not even foreshadowing, though. I think it is. Because I don't think it's foreshadowing because it's just explicitly saying something and he's just actively omitting something that he knew at the time. If I were to count up the amount of times in my notes where I say Lovecraft refuses to tell the story. You know, there's mm -hmm. a half a dozen of these in the, in the text. But this one, I would disagree with that, where this isn't him not telling the story. This is him being cheeky and like yes. doing yes, doing absolutely. the horror story thing where he's leaving yeah. that out so that he can have his big reveal at the end. Yeah, where he's like, what name do you think is on there? Eyebrow waggle. How many characters have been introduced in this story? None. There's only one <laughs> right. option. Right. Yeah. Here's the thing. I think when it's finally revealed, there are then two options. Because there are a total of two named characters in yeah. this story. It'd be the wild if it one. was just the servant. Like, <laughs> yeah. Weirdly, it was Hiram. Okay. Yeah. Who'd have thunk it? Weird, huh? So he like sees this casket with the, the special name, which makes him smile and shudder. Um, so he had an odd impulse to, uh, to just climb inside of it on the on the broad slab. And don't call her that. Um, <laughs> and extinguish my candle uh, and just lie down within the vacant box. So he just like lays down in this little casket. That's that's what he do. And he goes to sleep for the night. He sleeps all the way through the night. In my notes, I have you fucking weirdo is what I have. See, here's the thing. I think Holistic. if you can guarantee me there aren't spiders and crawlies in that box i could see that being yeah. a nice little nap like okay fair enough 
probably really cool down there. Like, that's true. But here's the thing. It's he not. is a weirdo. He is a weirdo. And so everything he does is colored by him being a weirdo. Me saying that Jervis Dudley is colored will bring Lovecraft back from the dead. Oh, my God. <laughs> so he wakes up in the morning and does. Feeling like what? P. Diddy. Yep. I mean, kind of. <laughs> um, and he he goes home and now he's just strolling out in daylight and he's like disheveled. And it's just it's completely the walk of shame. Everybody knows he was out all night partying. He's, he's got a swagger to him. I, I bet you wish you could hang out with the dank box I did. Now he's back on his bullshit and he's just napping at the tomb every night. It's not a nap. That's just going to sleep. Yeah. And I do like that. He says, Hence, henceforward, I haunted the tomb each night. I like that even though this is Lovecraft's first story and it feels like the beginning of something as far as his canon goes, I like that he's still sort of hearkening back to like old gothic novels. Because instead of him being haunted, he's the one haunting the tomb. And I appreciate that. That is a funny thing. Once the ghosts actually start showing up, Mm -hmm. he goes to them, which is kind of a unique aspect. Because it's not a haunted house story where like, oh, no, they're trapped in the haunted house. Like, no, he just keeps going back every night. Like, he he willingly, he is is choosing to haunt that place. I don't know how much of it is ghosts and how much of it is zombies. That is a thing, because later on he mentions... When he sees a ghost, he's like, oh, I know this face, but I know this face that has been rotted by time. Yeah. He's not seeing necessarily the ghosts in their prime, but he is talking with them. He is, yes. <laughs> he is. He is communicating with them because now he's before he just had information and was able to relate events that he wasn't around for. But now he's starting to use strange affectations. He's reporting on like super old gossip beyond just you know the ghost knowledge we get a tolkien aside where he sings an entire bar chant from way back in ye olde woldy days and this is the part where we talk about how the first time we we recorded this we had a huge aside where we were talking about right said fred and you're my mate because i'm like yeah this is just that song editor jay here again really beating into the ground the whole editor bit in this episode i promise i won't do that in the future maybe but it was a great bit. We went on for like 10 minutes uh, comparing and contrasting Right Said Fred's You're My Mate to this uh, bar chant. And it was really good. But uh, Right Said Fred is an anti-vaxxer and it came across as too Right Said positive. So we decided to cut it. I mean, we already talked about how Lovecraft fucks good. We figured that Right Said Fred was 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 a bridge too far. Yeah, this whole song that Jervis is reciting um, is like very much like, Oh, yeah, you know, I'm having fun and partying and blah, 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 blah. But at least I'm not dead. Like, it's really goofy. So the whole song is just about, yeah, I'm alive now, so I'm going to party to the full extent that I'm capable of. I haven't looked at them extensively, but I did I did check to see if anyone's recorded the song. And yeah, there is a couple there's a couple pretty good versions out there. Obviously, there's like multiple metal covers because every Lovecraft title is its own band name but there's also a couple that actually do it in old folk song kind of deal it's it's oh, really yeah there's some there's some fun ones check That's it out fun. the bar chant from the tomb if you just google that it'll pop up like six of them nice also like within this time as he's going to the tomb every night to party with the dead people he also gets a weird fear of thunderstorms 
a fear of fire and thunderstorms and who could see where, you know, where that came from. And I think I would count that as foreshadowing. Okay. Yeah. That one's, that one's just explicit. We're not, we're not in subtle territory here yet. I will say this though. Um, in, in this part of the story, uh, he says about this time, I conceived my present fear of fire and thunderstorms previously indifferent to such things, blah, 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 blah. And I think that's the closest we get to this not being a Lovecraft, like, self-insert is that previously he was not afraid of thunderstorms do we know that lovecraft was afraid of thunderstorms we know he was afraid of air conditioners well he wasn't afraid of air conditioners he just that was when he was in his stephen king phase and had to just had to write about new technology they discover pluto he's got to write about the outer gods they discover you know they have ammonia based air conditioning he has to write cool air yeah well that's the thing is that the story isn't even cold air or frigid air it's cool air just like slightly cooler than it is outside (laughs) i really like that story and i think its use of the new technology was fun yeah i also think it was fun but i also am going to say that lovecraft was afraid of air conditioners also when we get to that story i'm gonna know fucking everything about air conditioners and researching (laughs) that like i can tell that it's gonna be a rabbit hole and i am not looking forward to it Tell me about your Freon theories. Is there Freon in air conditioners? There's not in the ammonia ones because it's using ammonia. Oh, those must stink, huh? Ammonia smells. I don't think so. The The air conditioner used ammonia, but it, we can't do this now. We can't do this now. <laughs> We're going to do it for an hour during that episode. We can't do it now. Okay. All right. Noted. Okay. Okay. Moving on. So at this point, he says that nobody is seeing him go to the tomb and being super discreet, but also he didn't on the first night. But when he was visiting one of his other locations because during this point he's going to the tomb every night but he's also going other places and one of his favorites was going to this sub basement of the burned down mansion well okay i do want to point out all the places he's going it's like he's going to the tomb he's going to the churchyard i.e cemetery and he's going to the sub cellar so you're saying he's going to other places but every place he's going is just like and other places he doesn't mention all the places but we can assume they are of equal standing yeah. in terms of just creepy dead shit. He's got a vibe. So one of the times when he's going to this sub-basement, a villager follows him, and the line is a bit ambiguous, and we've had multiple arguments over this bit. A favorite haunt of mine during the day was the ruined cellar of the mansion that had burned down, and in fancy I would picture the structure as it had been in its prime. On one occasion, I startled a villager by leading him confidently to a shallow subcellar, of whose existence I seemed to know in spite of the fact that it had been unseen and forgotten for many generations. And to me, that read as he led a villager there. Like, he was like, hey, buddy, want to see some cool shit? Come on down to this basement. But you pointed out that it was, no, a, a, he led a villager there unintentionally. Somebody was following yeah. him or just happened to like see him go there. That's what I'm thinking is the case is that he was still trying to be sneaky and then happened to see that he was being followed afterwards. We didn't really say much about the subcellar. It's it, it, it's the basement, like the, the subcellar of the old mansion that was burned down. The right. Hyde mansion. Yeah. I don't know. It, it just seems like he was just going there anyway, doing his regular haunt, haunting situation, and a villager just happened to notice he was going and decided to follow him. Yeah, and I think you're right. 
because based on the rest of the story, that makes the most sense. Because mm-hmm. in my notes, I was like, you didn't tell anyone except this rando. And, and the other thing is, too, is like at this time, he thinks he, he's like sneaking around and sneaking out at night. But then there's a, a, a separate incident where when he's leaving the tomb after his cool little, you know, ghost party, we also don't get that much detail about ghost slash zombie party. It's just like he mostly just talks about leaving it. Yeah. Like we know he, there's, says, he says it's wild, but there's no details. Yeah. We know there's voices down there. We know there's activity. And when he comes out of the, when he comes out of the tomb, he says, it looks like he's been partying all night. Yeah. But we don't get actually descriptions of what's going on in there. Yeah. Like we can fill in the blanks based on like what information he comes out with, but we don't really have like a cool, fun party scene with zombies, which is too bad. Yeah. Um, but so, uh, as he's leaving one morning, another villager happens to see him as he's leaving the tomb. And then so he races home to try to get there before that villager gets there because he's like, no, he's going to tell on me. Um, and at this point, he's 21, I believe. Yes. So he's trying to race the villager there before the villager can tell his dad what he was up to in the tomb. He's over overhearing this sort of exchange and what the villager says to his dad is... One morning, as I emerged from the damp tomb and fastened the chain of the portal with none too steady hand, I beheld in an adjacent thicket the dreaded face of a watcher. Surely the end was near, for my bower was discovered and the object of my nocturnal journeys revealed. The man did not accost me, so I hastened home in an effort to overhear what he might report to my careworn father. Were my sojourns beyond the chain door about to be proclaimed to the world? Imagine my delighted astonishment on hearing the spy inform my parent in a cautious whisper that I had spent the night in the bower outside the tomb, my sleep-filmed eyes fixed upon the crevice where the padlocked portal stood ajar. By what miracle had the watcher been thus deluded? I was now convinced that a supernatural agency protected me. Made bold by this heaven-sent circumstance, I began to resume my perfect openness in going to the vault, confident that no one would witness my entrance. So two things about this quote is one the like conversation he overhears is the villager telling his dad that oh yeah your son Jervis was just like hanging out at this tomb staring at it with his eyes wide open and never actually went in it's just like looking and being kind of a creep about it and the second thing about this quote is that that's really creepy that his eyes were open just staring inside of this locked tomb like, that's so creepy and uncomfortable and probably one of the more unsettling things I think I've read in Lovecraft stories. It's just like, no, just staring because it's secondhand, too. Like, it's like hearing secondhand that you weren't experiencing this. You were just sitting there with your eyes open. Yeah, that's creepy. I also thought that, like, if this was a later Lovecraft story, that character would almost be the point of view character. Yes, absolutely. Because um, this guy's doing too much for a Lovecraft narrator. Yeah. (laughs) Like the narrators are very rarely the main characters. Normally the narrators are the witnesses. Now Jervis takes this information and just goes whole hog with it. He assumes that, holy shit, I have a magic shield. The ghosts have protected (laughs) me from being discovered and I am now... I am now completely invulnerable to any discovery and I can go about as I please. And so he just starts going to the tomb just brazenly in the night and in the morning. He's just walking through town. 
he, he's doing his his walk of shame, but now he's just proud about it. It's so funny. It's so funny. And I think if we're going back to like it is a metaphor for sexual development, you can put that in there. But from a human perspective, even if you assumed it was magic, you were saved once. Yeah. You were saved once. You got a gimme. And you assumed, ah, the ghosts have got my back forever. That's fucked up. That would be like if Jules walked out with the briefcase in Pulp Fiction and was like, I cannot be shot. Like, no, <laughs> yeah. that's that's not how this works. <laughs> that's not how miracles work. Like, wrong conclusion, bud. At the very least, an overestimation, certainly. At least, like, run a couple experiments first. Or just don't chance it. You know what I mean? If you think you have a, If you think you have a magic shield, that's cool, but like... Still maybe take some steps. Yeah. Take the long way home. I don't know. You, you like <laughs> you like walking through the woods. That's your whole deal. So he was doing this for a week where he was just going all willy-nilly. Just, just, being, just being stanky Jervis. <laughs> yeah. He's like not showering because he's like, ah, oh, they can't smell the zombie on me. It's fine. I thought that was funny because it was just a week because it seemed like it seemed a lot. I, I remember it being a lot longer. But in rereading it, it's like, no. And very much it blows the, the the theory that he has a magic shield out of the water because he only <laughs> does this for a week before things go tits up. Yeah. Yeah, a bit. So after the week, he goes to go to the tomb again, per the huge. And he even states that, you know, I probably shouldn't go tonight. It looks like a thunderstorm's on the horizon. But, you know. I'm afraid of those now. But corpse party. We got to go to the, we can't, we can't stand up. Jeffrey? <laughs> yeah. He's expecting Old me. Jeff. But the call of the, the ghosts aren't coming from the tomb this time. They're coming from that subcellar that we talked about. And so he gets there and he turns the corner. And uh, now the whole mansion is there. It's visible in its full splendor. We got a full ghost mansion here. And not only that, but there are there's people heading to the mansion. There are so many people. So many. A throngs. He has to navigate crowds of ghosts. As I emerged from an intervening grove upon the plain before the ruin, I beheld in the misty moonlight a thing I had always vaguely expected. The mansion, gone for a century, once more reared its stately height to the raptured vision, every window ablaze with the splendor of many candles. Up the long drive rolled the coaches of the Boston gentry, whilst on foot came a numerous assemblage of the powdered exquisites from the neighboring mansions. With this throng I mingled, though I knew I belonged with the hosts rather than the guests. Inside the hall were music, laughter, and wine on every hand. Several faces I recognized, though I should have known them better had they been shriveled or eaten away by death and decomposition. I'm imagining, I was gonna say literally dozens, but like literally like, 80, 90 people, like a bunch of people, like very, very wealthy people, people. Um, oh, yeah. Remember the Boston Gentry? It oh, we do get weird. that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, in my notes, I said I didn't know Boston had those. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that that answers that yeah. question. Yeah. So the Boston Gentry, but also like their attendants and stuff and like the people like like their drivers and things like that. Ghost um, cars. Just, we get ghost cars. Well, ghost buggies. I assume that also means ghost, ghost horses. Ghost coaches. Ooh, ghost horses. That's terrifying. Yeah, that's fucked up for those horses. They didn't sign up for this. Nah. What what ennui did they have to be summoned as a ghost? That's not fair. 
but he's also just sort of expecting it. Like you mentioned, he is he yeah. is nonplussed at this whole event. I like the idea that he just always vaguely expected that this giant mansion was going to just poof back into existence. Well, I mean, it took him 10 years and then there were multiple ghost parties. So why wouldn't it escalate more? That's fair. Yeah. And like he gets saved once and thinks he's invulnerable forever. Why wouldn't he just immediately escalate everything all the time? Oh, and there's that line about the the zombies, too. Uh, several faces I recognized, though I should have known them better had they been shriveled or eaten away by death in decomp. Yeah, so he doesn't he doesn't know their full faces. He's not seeing full ghosts. So it's like a weird zombie party or yeah. disembodied voices coming from the dead, which makes me wonder how he's partying. Is he just like, is he, is this a weekend at Bernie situation? Does he have them all rigged up on strings down there? What I'm imagining is that they're zombies and I, okay, I I need you to understand that the, the partying I am imagining is David Mitchell in peep show where he's doing like the dancing with like flailing his arms everywhere yes exactly that that is what i'm like imagining is him doing that dance in the tomb not only is he going into the party but he knows that he is not just a guest at this party he should be among the hosts and he does he goes in he has a great time for a bit yeah and then that thunderstorm actually you know swoops in suddenly a peal of thunder Resonant even above the din of the swinish revelry, clave the very roof and laid a hush of fear upon the boisterous company. Red tongues of flame and searing gusts of heat engulfed the house, and the roisters, struck with the terror at the descent of the calamity which seemed to transcend the bounds of unguided nature, fled shrieking into the night. That was another thing we kind of disagreed on, because you said you weren't sure because it was a peal of thunder and not that cleansing bolt of lightning and this as far as lovecraft bingo does not count for cleansing bolt of lightning we will get many of those it's a lightning bolt it does not count on the bingo sheet i will maintain that yeah no i i completely agree with that i like the detail that we don't see that lightning strike because he doesn't see the lightning strike he's inside why would he see that there's a clap of thunder the roof splits and then fire happens arguably because the thunder rocks the house so hard that everybody goes quiet and then the roof caves in and then fire happens. It could have just rocked the house so hard that it knocked some shit over and all the candles lit. Yeah, but when we had talked about it previously, like I was sort of like, I'm pretty sure that lightning struck and then it's and then it split the roof. Yes, because it goes from roof being split to just fire everywhere. There was no transition between, oh, this caught a little bit of fire, this caught a little bit of fire, uh, fire, you know. No, it was just roof split, then red tongues of flame and searing gusts of heat engulfed the house. And cleansing bolt of lightning is different. That's that's where the cleansing bolt of lightning ends action. There is lightning and then the character faints or goes blacks out and then wakes up somewhere else that's a cleansing Mm -hmm. bolt of lightning we'll talk about those later this is notable that we get we get the hints of what's coming but it is not a proper one yet everyone is leaving the house they're all fleeing like the burning house um leaving makes it sound like it's in an orderly fashion (laughs) there they panic (laughs) and flee because the house is collapsing and on fire Right. Um, Meanwhile, Jervis is, uh, I think he's sitting and he says he was like so afraid that he was 
just like unable to make himself move. And Ripped then in groveling fear. Yes. And there was this bit where it reads like there's a like a perspective shift and it's changing from the perspective of Jervis Dudley to the perspective of the one man who did actually burn and die when the house historically was destroyed. Right. The grave, the grave that he's been laying in this whole time, that guy. Yeah. I alone remained riveted to my seat by a groveling fear which I had never felt before. And then a second horror took possession of my soul. Burnt alive to ashes, my body dispersed by the four winds, I might never lie in the tomb of the hides. Was my coffin not prepared for me? Had I not a right to rest till eternity among the descendants of Sir Joffrey Hyde? Aye, I would claim my heritage of death, even though my soul goes seeking through the ages for another corporeal tenement to represent it on the vacant slab in the alcove of the vault. Jervis Hyde should never share the same fate of Palinaris. This perspective shift definitely to me reads as if it is the fears, like the the dying fears of the guy who historically died in that fire. He died in the fire and that is unacceptable. And so his spirit continues down the line until he can get someone to lay there. Yeah. So then the ghost house just sort of fades away and Jervis just sort of comes to screaming and he finds that he's like struggling in the arms of two men. In my notes, I say one of which being the guy who very gently suggested therapy to his dad. He did not suggest therapy, but one of which being the guy who uh, went and told Jervis's dad that he was hanging out by the tomb. Yeah, the guy the guy who followed him. He was actually following him and, and staking him out for his dad. That's not actually that's not necessarily true. Is it? No, but it's implied, I believe. I thought they were two different guys. I thought the villager and the guy who saw him leave the tomb in the morning were two different characters. It may as well be because they the villagers all kind of mesh together and it's... That's true. Everybody knows what Jervis is up to. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. He thinks he's being sneaky. He's absolutely not. Right. But so he's like having this fit and very upset and disturbed and... As they were like pulling him away from where he was in the subcellar because the the ghost house disappeared and he was just in the subcellar. As they were pulling him away, he saw that there was an actual recent lightning strike near where he was standing that had hit a box. He watches as they open the box and inside was a porcelain miniature of a dude in a wig. That looked exactly like Jervis. Ooh, creepy. But that doesn't matter because he's off to the asylum. They don't care about that. It also doesn't matter because the initials are J.H., not J.D. Silly. This is Jervis Dudley. Yeah, it just looked like him. Yeah. Weird, isn't it? Who's J.H.? And now we get the kind of, not deus ex machina, but just sort of denouement ex machina. (laughs) Um, We meet Hiram, who is... Their long-serving, simple-minded servant who also has been hanging out in the churchyards this whole time and has never been mentioned until this time. Not only was he not named until this point, he was not mentioned. He was not alluded to. No, second to last paragraph, we get a new character. Which is especially fucked up because, again, if 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 I'm doing my writing pass through this, this is the other point where I mark, hey, put another sentence in there. You have your servant Hiram who also hangs around churchyards and you could have had a little bit of tension in there where, ooh, I, I'm I'm visiting all these places, but I have to watch out for Hiram because he also kind of hangs around there. 
you know, I have to like dodge him or I, I have to like look out for him or something. You could have established him at the start of the story so easily. Or even like Hiram, like covering for him or something. He just acknowledging that he existed. Exactly. Because he never he's like, oh, I don't I didn't tell anyone about my, you know, my nocturnal visits. And they could have just said even Hiram, who like may have been cool with it because Hi- <laughs> right. Hiram ha- is hanging around churchyards. He might have been cool with him and helped him out. But he's like, oh, he's so secretive. He doesn't even he doesn't even tell Hiram who could have been his buddy. You could have had something there. I don't know. Something. So Hiram just like keeps him up to date about what's going on in town, blah, 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 blah. But then loyal to the last Hiram bursts open the tomb that Jervis was apparently just staring at the entire time and never actually entered. He lost the key during the the mansion party. So yeah. he can no one ever saw the key. He hid that the whole time. So we was it real? Who knows? But the lock was never disturbed. It hadn't been disturbed in at least 50 years. It's rusted over. <laughs> right. So Hiram breaks it open, goes down there to look at it. It's so nice that Hiram didn't have to go and like... He didn't have to read Plutarch's Lives? Yeah, he didn't have to read Plutarch's Lives and wait for a decade until he had like the mental apt- like aptitude to be able to miraculously find a key. Exactly. No, he just, he just busted open. So Hiram goes down there and he finds that slab that he's been laying on this whole time. And that coffin has a plate. We reveal the name on the plate finally. And it's Jervis Hyde. Ooh. Ooh. But Hiram, loyal to the last, has held faith in me and has done that which impels me to make public at least a part of my story. A week ago, he burst open the lock which chains the door to the tomb perpetually ajar and descended with the lantern into the murky depths. On a slab in the alcove, he found an old but empty coffin whose tarnished plate bears the single word, Jervis. In that coffin and in that vault, they have promised me I shall be buried. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yay, good story. (laughs) Which, why did he need... He, why did he need Hiram to do that? Because he knew it said Jervis Hyde. Yeah, he knew it, it was Jervis Hyde. He actively chose not to share it with us. I don't know. I guess for for to to prove his story, to prove that he wasn't completely mad or whatever. Yeah, but that something. that's not emphasized. But so anyway, they promise him that when he dies in the asylum, they'll bury him at the tomb, and so now he is at peace because the prophecy can be fulfilled. The possessed spirit can can go to its little sleepy, sleepy hole, which is what you call a coffin. It's a little sleepy box. Yep. Hold on. It's not an italicized ending. Sort of. Okay. Whose tarnished plates bear the single word, italics, Jervis, in a coffin and a vault that they have promised me I shall be buried. Like, so it's not an italicized last line, but we do. It's in there. It's close. I'm not going to count it. It's not on the bingo chart. Proto, we're getting there. It's his first story. I, I I would count that. Is it italicized? It is. Jervis is italicized. In my notes, it is not. Let me just double Hold check. on. Yep, I'm on the, I'm on the notes. Yes, Let me it actually. Is. Okay. It is cool. italicized and in quotes. Um, I had to break break out the paper book. I I would count that on the bingo sheet because it's in the last paragraph and it is an an italicized um reveal. reveal. I, you know what? You're, you are correct. I'll mark this on the bingo sheet. It's going to be a huge bingo sheet, but it'll be great. It depends if we're going for, uh, I guess not per story because per story we've only, per story we've only hit like five or six. So you're well within bingo territory here. Yeah. We're going to have a huge bingo sheet. That's going to cover the canon 
and just see, you know, which stories give us a bingo. Yeah. So what did you think about the story itself? I liked it. It was fine. It was fine. Like, yeah. there are some narrative issues that I have with it. I think compared to most of the other ones, uh, not racist at all. Yep. Not at all. That that mm, That's that's an achievement. It's it's on the ones that I would recommend to people read because that's that's a big issue. When you say Lovecraft is your favorite author and they say, oh, I've never heard of him. What story should I read? You have to go ah, and like panic, try to remember like which is yeah. the one that's not going to like they're going to read it and go, oh, you're bad. Like this right. is this is rough. Or in my case, oh, you need therapy. Oh, <laughs> you need to talk to somebody. <laughs> like are you okay <laughs> exactly uh, this one's just it's perfectly middling i think it uh, and yeah, i don't say that in a bad way i think this i think this in our the other list we have so many lists at the end of this and like <laughs> what's our what's our favorite rankings this one goes i think squarely in the middle i like this one a lot there's little phrases that stood out to me i like that you can see how certain lovecraft tropes like start here and then develop later but on its own merit i i think it's fine yeah and as a first showing like it's great yeah especially as like you you've set a tone if anyone read if anyone read that in the vagrant and were like oh i should look out for this guy in the coming years you would be well served yeah we we didn't really talk about the horniness okay i guess i'll put that in here for your consideration, here is a list of the various hornyisms that are in this story. <laughs> Discolored by the mists and dampness, senses are well nigh intoxicated with the surging seas of moist verdure and the subtly indefinable odors. Forcing my way between two savage clumps of briar, I suddenly encountered the entrance to the vault, its cold, damp interior into which I vainly peered through the aperture so tantalizingly, squeezed my slight form through the space. Someday force an entrance to the black, chilly depths that seemed calling out to me. It caused me to associate the cold clay with the breathing body in a vague fashion. The odor of the place repelled yet bewitched me. Dank portal. I would lie outstretched on the mossy ground, thinking strange thoughts and dreaming strange dreams. The night of the first revelation was a sultry one. Descended the dripping steps. I was the wildest and most abandoned. Gay blasphemy poured in torrents from my lips, and in my shocking sallies I heeded no law of God, man, or nature. I tasted to the full the joys of that charnel convivality which I must not describe. And I promise you, none of those are better in context. None of them. No! They're all actually worse. Most of them are worse. Because, like, it's just a lot. And it also doesn't help that it's, like, I don't really know any other Lovecraft stories where it's sort of like a coming of age story where you start out at 10 and then you're 11 and then you are 21 and like you actually grow into this. And by you, I mean the character where the character sort of grows into their environment and the weirdness like that's kind of out of the ordinary for Lovecraft. Lovecraft is I don't want to say slice of life, but it's like much more contained like temporally, whereas this for the narrator, at least. Yeah. Um, whereas this much more just like spans like literally a decade of this character's life. Even in stories where we get more breadth of time, it's things like Call of Cthulhu, where we're looking at multiple stories from multiple different people over a, a long period of time. It's not 
specifically one person developing into a weird fiction weirdo. Right. But yeah, so it sort of takes place over, you know, like young boy into like early adulthood. And a lot of that, I'm like, okay, it's time. Plus, you know, it's just it's just a lot going into a wet, dank old tomb. It's very yonic. And that's the thing. A lot of Lovecraft monsters end up being super phallic. There's a lot of tentacles. There's a lot of stuff going on. And there's yonic stuff in there. But this one is so heavily focused on like mm-hmm. vaginal imagery in a way that other stories do not have. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's just not us reading into it. Like it's a lot of it just seems like very like explicitly rowdy. <laughs> very much so. Like, like it's real rowdy. And, and like the fact that like Jervis as a sort of like affected type of character, like leaning into almost like a, a weird proto dandy type character as he's like interacting with all these dead bodies and stuff and coming back with like these like very lewd sort of conceits and things like that. And it's just, I don't know. It's real funny. <laughs> Absolutely. The first few times I, I read this story, it, it's like, it's so on the nose that I bounced off of it and I like refused to engage with it on that level. But like reading it this time, it's like, Oh, this is just so obvious. There's no other there's no other reading for it. It's just very it's just very sexual in a lot of ways that don't happen in Lovecraft stories. You know who Charles Nelson Riley is? Oh, I've heard the name. Okay. Well, he was like actor and stuff like that. Um comedian, sort of like celebrity personality. But like in like match game. Like in the early 70s, whenever, okay. you know, yeah, yeah. So whenever he would make like a dirty joke, he would like waggle his glasses, right? Yeah. And, okay. Yep. I know what you're so, talking about. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so there's just like a lot of like glasses waggling in this story. Yeah, absolutely. So in the last episode, I mentioned how my brain can kind of think about the Lovecraft canon in terms of like a Pokedex and how it's trying to like categorize everything in relation to each other and that is not i almost said biblically accurate and that's definitely not the word i'm looking Mm -hmm. for but um you know lovecraft didn't have the concept of a canon at the time and he certainly didn't call it the cthulhu mythos i mean i mean not not of his own work no no it was a lot looser he, he called it Yogg-Sothery, which, you know, is fun. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. He, he That's that's the term he used for it, was Yogg-Sothery, which I is fun. I bet he salivated a lot. It's like um, a real sloppy mouth. Maybe. I know he had a high, really high, reedy voice. Um, really? But, yeah, it was really high and nasally, and people often said it was annoying. <laughs> that part checks out. But yeah, he didn't have like that strict adherence to the canon. And when you really dig into it, the stories bear that out. He reuses gods and changes what they do from story to story. And a lot of the modern Cthulhu mythos and the way that people treat it in the modern day, you know, there's a lot of fanon that goes into it, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And you can see that that I'm doing that a lot with this story because I went into it and I'm treating this guy's story as very literal. 
yes, he's in an asylum. Yes, he's gone mad or whatever. And the story is ambiguous enough to where if this were the only story we ever had, it's really ambiguous whether he was telling the truth or not or whether, you know, it was just, you know, there's no evidence for anything that he's saying. But when you look at it in terms of the Lovecraft canon, it's like, no, shit, like this happens all the time. He's he absolutely went to a ghost party. There's not a doubt in my mind that he went to a ghost party and saw all of this stuff and things like this happen because, you know, it happens in every other Lovecraft story. That's also kind of like how Jervis Dudley was like, oh, yeah. And then the ghost house showed up kind of like how I always sort of expected it to like. Yeah, we like expected sort of- it too because <laughs> right. it's a Lovecraft story. Some shit's going to happen. Yeah, that means something to us. Exactly. I don't really know that I have any point with that. It's just something that I wanted to point out. Um, we had talked about it at, at, um, off mic at one point where we had talked about the dryads at the start of the story where he talks about being a little kid and 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 visiting the dryads of the forest. And we were like, is that literal? Did he actually see dryads? And I have no doubt in my mind that the dryads in the forest are real. Later on, he... he he says a thing where he's like, I made a vow to the hundred gods of the woods, you know, that I would get in that tomb. And we were like, is that literal? Now what about this one? Yeah. Yeah. Because I was yeah, like, exactly. well, no, it's not. He's not saying there's literally a hundred gods in the woods. He's just sort of saying he swore a vow to the various spirits of the woods. And like, there's no evidence for that. But like, you look at it in the wider but canon even- and you can just sort of draw the lines together. But even you say the spirits of the wood and like, do you mean literal spirits or do you mean more uh, metaphorical spirits? You literal know, like, spirits, literal dryads yeah, like, and and ghouls and whatever. It's all there. We did not get ghouls in this story. We do not get ghouls for a while, sadly. It's not too long. Pikmin's, when, when do we get, when's, when, when, does, when does Pikmin show up? Hold on. The picture, is the picture in the house one of his? No, that's, that's a different one. I'm here. It's uh, number four. Wow, we got ways to go. Pikmin's model is like number 56 on our list. So we have about a decade of Lovecraft stories to get through first. I'm pretty sure a ghoul will show up before then, though. On lovecraft.fandom.com, it says that ghouls first show up in Pikmin's model. Oh, damn. Really? I'm I'm surprised at that. We get Dreams Quest stuff way before then. I'm surprised we didn't even get a name drop. Yeah, that was... That was it. It was just something I was thinking about while we were while we were wrapping up here. Did you want to do any recommendations? Uh, yeah. So right now I'm currently reading My Heart as a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones, it's a which very is good amazing. Title. Right. It's really, really good. Um, and it's part of a trilogy. And the second book is available as an arc right now as like an advanced reader copy that I can get access to as a librarian. Um, so I might be able to read that before it's actually like out on the shelves, which I'm very excited for. Um, but I do also want to recommend like, uh, like a straight up like weird fiction, you know, piece. Uh, and I, I actually want to recommend um, Beneath the Rising by Premi Muhammad. It's really, really good. Um, it is, I believe, her like debut novel that was released in 2020. Um, I think that's also going to be part of a trilogy. It deals with like Lovecraftian horror in like a very literal way where um you have like these these two like young characters. Well, first of all, it's like a it's a coming of age type book where these two characters I think are late teens, early twenties. 
so the two main characters are Johnny, who's sort of like uh, she grew up and she was like this really young prodigy. Now she's like in her like, I think, mid to late teens. And then her friend Nick, who works at a grocery store. And uh, so she's also like a, uh, Johnny's a super scientist type kid. Uh, and she has this invention that essentially awakens all these old gods that they have to deal with. And so Nick joins her on this quest to try to like deal with these old Lovecraftian gods and stuff. And it's just like really, really fun. And it has a lot to do with like class, has a lot to do with race. And it's just, it's a really great book. And I, you know, with a 2020 debut, a lot of books didn't quite get as much attention as they deserved. So I really wanted that to be the first recommendation, the first official recommendation. Nice. When you say Lovecraftian, I'm sure I'll ask this a billion times throughout the run of the show, but like, when we say Lovecraftian, sometimes that means things that are akin to Lovecraft, and sometimes it means Azathoth is there. Um, it's much closer to the latter. I feel like we should do this. We should have like a um, not a spectrum. I guess a spectrum, like some sort of like like a line. I got like a Kinsey scale of Lovecraftianism, where like zero is like okay, uh, it's weird fiction, not necessarily Lovecraftian. But whereas seven is like straight up Lovecraftian, Lovecraft is there. Uh, these various creatures are named by name, as are the gods. I would give this a six out of seven. I would say four on this scale is uh, Stephen King's Randall Flag, where um, he claims it's Narlathotep, but like it is not at all supported in the text. Mm-hmm. Where it's like that's right in the middle. So like a voice of God stuff, like voice of God, it's Lovecraftian, but it's never actually stated within the text. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Okay. Well, um, yeah. And then, um, what was the Ruthanna, uh, Emery's book? Winter, Winter Tide. Tide. Winter Tide. Yep. Winter Tide, I would say is a seven. Yes, absolutely. Cause like, that's just dealing with, that's, just that's a straight sequel. up. Yes, exactly. So that's a seven. So I would put Beneath the Rising as a six. Okay, cool. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that does it here for us for the tomb. Uh, We will be back next time with Dagon. Yay. Which was, I was looking up to see its publication year. This actually came out way earlier because I think I said like it was his date. The tomb was his debut story and that made it sound like it was his first published and mm. he started getting published in 1919, and the tomb was published in 1922. So, like three years, you know, th- three to five years later, um, uh, Reminiscence yeah. of Samuel Johnson, I think, is actually the first one. Um, but either way, it's like in it's in his first like five, so it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, um, uh, Dagon was the fourth story that Lovecraft had published. The tomb was the twenty second. The 22nd? Wow. Okay. Yeah, Shit. Um, Never if you mind. Look, uh, column F. Column. Oh, I can slide this whole thing over. That's actually. Oh, did, did you not see how intensive this uh, spreadsheet uh, was? Nope. I had first place of publication was the last one that I saw. Oh, yeah. So I have title, year written, year of publication, the order in which wow, it was 22. Written. Yeah, I, am, I, I was treating this like it was also his first story. Mm-mm, and that no. is not the case. Anyway, doesn't matter. So we'll be back with the, with Dagon, another good one. Um, His fourth published story, and the second written. Yeah, it was actually written like a month after the tomb. 
Right. Yeah. And so we still don't have an outro. So what do we say every week? Breakfast. And if I don't see you, lunch and dinner. <laughs> All right, bye. Unrequited Lovecraft is a Queer Cryptids production. Find more of our work at QueerCryptids.com. Follow us on Twitter at Queer underscore Cryptids and at Unlovecraft. For us individually at Beckus and at Banyan White. We are also on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Queer Cryptids. Thank you to Maisie Caves for our intro and outro music. And remember, I was struck by lightning walking down the street. I was hit by something last night in my sleep. It's a dead man's party. Who could ask for more? Goodbye. <laughs>